0: Welcome to the Mad Mamluks. I'm Mahin, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Sheikh Amr Said and Sim. Today's guest, we are going international. Calling in all the way from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates is Nabil Aziz, who is a freelance copywriter, blogger, and the founder of Becoming the Alpha Muslim, uh, which, is a, which is a website helping Muslim men, you know, become an alpha dons in our community and owning life. Nabil, what's good, bro? Assalamu <laughs> alaikum.
1: Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thanks, guys, for having me on. I really appreciate it.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So, Nabil, let's get right into it. You you grew up in Sri Lanka, right? Is that correct? And then you moved the United States to go to college.
1: Yeah, I'm b- Sri Lanka born and raised. Uh, born in Colombo, lived uh, in a suburb just outside Colombo. Um, went to high school there, and as soon as I graduated from high school, I went to uh, Illinois Tech okay. for chemical engineering. And with a minor in computer science, which I flunked out of. <laughs>
0: <laughs> How did you flunk at IIT, bro? It's not a party school. It's like you know, it's a bunch of commuters and like you know, s- you know, smart Asian kids with like you know, high waters walking around.
1: <laughs> yeah, so that was. I had no idea that this is like basically the the immigrant school. Uh, so it was basically like I never left home.
2: <laughs>
0: I lived in the.
1: I lived in the dorms, and it was just like DCs and Pakis and Africans. Uh, there was no girls there. Uh, of course, you know you guys are religious, but at the time I wasn't <laughs> religious. There was very few girls there, and the girls that were there, they were quite uppity because they had too much choice,
0: or they had beards. They're <laughs> engineers. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that was that was a scene, but it was a good school. Chicago is a, is an amazing place to live, actually. Uh, so I had a really good time, probably too good of a time.
0: I'm gonna get in trouble for saying that. My enough. my wife has has her undergrads in engineering, so but she doesn't listen. She don't listen to the podcast though, so it's all good. I'm safe as long <laughs> as somebody don't rat me out. That's talking. Looking at Shikama right now.
1: <laughs>
0: all right, so so basically, you're IIT. Um, you're probably going through the same issues that a lot of you know first time kids away from home going through. You have all this freedom. Um, I sucked pretty bad in undergrad, too, especially early on. So it's pretty self-explanatory, you know, the struggles as far as flunking out and whatnot. So you ended up homeless, right? The tel- I didn't end up homeless. I never got that bad. But how did that happen?
3: Yeah. Uh, um, and <laughs> you know, wrong, well, wait, well, what age are you when all this is going on, all this craziness?
1: Uh, when the First time I was homeless probably was like uh, 21. And the second time was uh, around uh, 24-ish.
0: Yeah. So that was like drinking age, right? The first phase. Was that anything oh to do my with it? God, my <laughs> what is, what uh, I mean,
1: at 18, when you get there, you can't drink. But, I mean, if you have access to friends who are old enough or can buy alcohol, then alcohol is easy to come by. But I, for, for me, alcohol really wasn't that much of a problem. Um, neither was uh, weed or anything like that. It was just the fact that I had all this freedom, just like you said, and I had no idea what to do with it. Like we were, I mean, we're, if, I don't know if you know, like Muslims back home, maybe you have this over there as well. Like a lot of Muslims are just a cultural Muslim and their only connection to Islam is that they're socially conservative. So Islam for them is uh, no boyfriend, girlfriend, no drinking alcohol and no smoking. You get what I'm saying? No pork. <laughs> and no pork, yeah so once you once you leave uh, and you have all this freedom and you're you're not actually prepared with street knowledge and it's uh, street knowledge is very important in order to survive in that situation, you sort of lose control uh, you don't know how to control yourself maybe this is just my my situation personally I know there were there are a lot of kids that probably came from similar backgrounds and they did really well in school It could be just my personality that didn't really you know, worked that well for me. No, uh, dude, being in that situation.
0: No, actually, I, I, mine is very similar in that sense. Because you know, I, I I felt like I was restricted growing up. I wasn't allowed to do a lot of stuff. And the advice I got from my dad, pretty much, he he told me two words before I was going to college. And I went to college in Toronto, Canada. And I'm originally from Ohio. And he, mm. he said his two words of advice before I went off was. No sex. I can say that. I can say that on the podcast, right? It's yeah, not a, like Haram yeah, to say. Okay. No, no, no. But, but, but he said like no sex. He basically was like no sex. <laughs> that's good advice from a yeah. father. He's He's looking out for you. That's like one of two conversations I've had, maybe three conversations I've had with them about the birds and the bees in my life.
1: Ultimately, I I was completely responsible for my own actions, like I I would never say otherwise. So it was just me being a total screw up. So I wouldn't, I would you know not show up to class or just barely you know do whatever bare minimum to get by. Most of the time, I would uh, flunk my classes and have to retake them. Um, I was on probation a bunch of times, and then, after a few years, I was just like whatever i just couldn't give i just couldn't didn 't care anymore and Then I started working on campus, so that took up a bunch of my time, so now I was into like okay now i 'm getting paychecks now I'm making money, and I have disposable income so that was that was taking up my time and then we got into the poker deal, and that basically ended it
3: yeah yeah so tell us a little bit about the the poker and uh the poker life because uh i had uh an addiction to poker but i never played with money i had facebook came out with like a a poker game that uh involved free coins and uh I was literally addicted to it for i want to say a good six, seven months where I ended up becoming one of the top ten players in uh zinka 's uh, Facebook poker game, and I ended up selling these <laughs> the, I, I ended up selling these fake chips to people all over the world. So I would sell like a million chips for 10 bucks. It really, I had my rates, but if anyone had money, I would take whatever they had. <laughs> because I know they would blow it and they'd come right back to me for more. And it oh, became be it became an insane order. lifestyle because everything, because I, you know, when you play on the the really high stake tables, that that's really when you're actually playing with real money, even though it's not real. Because it's all sellers who are playing on these really big tables uh, where the blinds are like 1 million, 2 million, or 5 million, 10 million. And uh, I I wouldn't be able to go to sleep at night if I lost a bad hand, um, (laughs) just kicking myself over and over (laughs) again. I would look at everything in uh, probabilities. Um, Everything in life became probabilities, you know?
1: So, like, uh, when when I was in school, it was just when... The World Series of Poker was getting popular on ESPN. Yeah. Um, and I remember, I think it was we were watching Chris Moneymaker uh, win the World Series. And he's just like this regular guy, uh, accountant, you know, typical nine to five square. And he shows up at the World Series one day and then he wins uh, like a million dollars or whatever the amount was, which was fascinating to us. So we started playing uh, poker just for small stakes, you know. Uh, but we were playing no limit, uh, no limit Texas Hold'em for like maybe five or ten dollar buy-ins at a time. And then we would sp- basically go to the, the dorm, the dorm cafeteria, and stay up all night playing cards. And then at three o'clock in the morning, we would uh, go to White Castle and get those crepe cases, like I said earlier. And then <laughs> we basically became. Uh, I don't know about the other guys, but for me, I became like a student of the game because I'm sort of like a nerd. And then if something interests me, I'll start studying it. So now I am I became like this, uh, you know, uh, student of Texas Hold'em and other forms of poker, going to the forums and buying the books. I bought my own set of chips. And then when we was old enough, I think after 21, just if you go to... 33rd, I mean, 31st and 31st and, uh, Dan Ryan, there's a, a a depot, like a, 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 just on the edge of Chinatown where you can get the shuttle. Maybe I shouldn't be telling this to your Muslim audience.
3: (laughs) You can, you can
1: get the shuttle that goes to a, a, a boat casino in Indiana and they have poker over there. But I would suggest that the brothers don't try to find the place.
3: We have a religious audience Mashallah. They've already checked out by now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so then you go uh, you go uh, to the boat casino and they have tables there. And those are fairly small stakes. They're 5 and 10. Uh, they have 10 and 20 and they have 20-40. Uh, Limit, po- Limit Texas Hold'em, which is what I was playing. And that's where um, I tried to basically be a professional poker player. I mean, I got pretty good at it, pretty good at it, but the thing is that it's still gambling at the end of the day. Unless you have uh, a big sort of stack, uh, a, a big stake to ride out the the losses, then you're gonna you're gonna end up losing anyway. Uh, so that was a, that was a problem. That, that's what led to me being homeless the, the first time.
3: You, you uh, gotta uh, ride out the bad, to, you I'm got just, you gotta ride out the bad streaks with uh, smaller tables, uh, one dollar, two dollar tables.
1: Right, right, right. <laughs> But you're you basically you're trying to it's like a basically it's a job so you 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 find the guys who are working the guys who are making money they they it's they treat it as a nine to five job it's just another job and I guess it gets quite boring in the sense that you're doing the same thing over and over again day in and day out to make a living so you can make a you can make an hourly wage it's it, obviously it's significant but you can make an hourly wage just playing poker for, for a living. So, in order to do that and ride out the bad streaks, you need a you need a decent stack of uh, stack of cash, so that because it's it's a it's a long term thing, you need to have enough to ride out the bad streaks so that you so that you don't play badly when you're losing, uh, that you can keep making the right the right calls or the right folds and the right raises and things like that even when you're losing. When you go on uh, when you go on a bad streak and then you start making bad decisions, that's when you lose all of your money, and that's basically what happened to me. I was uh, in Chicago. I was in Chicago over the summer. We had a, um, a rented apartment with a couple of my friends, and, and then I, I was trying. to Where were your parents at the time? My parents at the time. My dad was working in Dubai, and my mom was in Sri Lanka okay, okay. with uh, with my with my sister was in high school, so I was uh, I was alone in in Chicago. So that summer, we ended up trying to. Uh, make a go of it professionally and I was doing okay for a couple of months but then I hit that bad streak and started playing badly and then I lost all of it
0: at that point you had an opportunity eventually fast forward a couple of years you end up going back home right um how was that experience like you pretty much spent all your dad's money and you had some scholarships but you're broke you're homeless you funked out of school and then you're getting on this flight did you fly back to Dubai or to Colombo? From Chicago,
1: that was a. It was a basically a forty-eight hour trip. I went to layover in Birmingham for like an hour, and then we went to somewhere in India. I can't remember. That was like I had a sixteen-hour layover, trying to sit in the the transit lounge alone, Um, and then they ended up losing up my bags, and then I eventually got to Colombo after being in the same clothes for like more than two days straight. without a shower and how how many yeah, years so that, had passed before you had seen your parents um i think it was maybe five years since i had seen them um and in between there was maybe three or four years where i didn't speak a single word to them at all uh, just before i came home i sort of uh started to repair the relationship but you asked how that felt i mean for me, I was a straight a student in high school um, you know good at whatever I put my mind to just to fail in that way and and come back with your tail between your legs. I think one of the reasons I tried so hard to stay in Chicago and you know try to make it work was because I didn't want to fail so badly. I wanted something to show for it so just to fail so badly and come home you know with your tail between your legs and the disappointment of facing your uh, your parents that you basically been such a terrible son to for so many years, um, I don't know how to explain it until unless you've, you know, you've, you've failed that hard and you've disappointed your parents in such a way. Only, the only people who've been through that will sort of understand the shame that you might feel as a, as a, as a human being and more than moreover, as a, as a man.
0: So then, okay, so you, so you land, how did your parents, like, do you get yelled at? Is it? Like I mean, because there's a lot of parents probably in our community that have to deal with kids who are like deadbeat flunkies, right? I mean, maybe they can get some advice. Like, how do they how do they react to you, and what effect do they, that that have on you moving forward?
1: I think um, they were just re- they, they were just relieved to have me home. Because uh, at, at the end of the day, parents are like, you're you're their you're their child, right? I'm their firstborn son." So at the end of the day, they just wanted to uh, have me back home and and just make sure that I was okay. However, I would get the brown, the, the, the Desi slash Pakistani slash Sri Lankan shade every now and again uh, about how much of a screw up and a loser I was. Uh, I, I would have preferred getting yelled at rather than the sort of shade that they would throw my way every now and again.
0: Now, I don't know too many Sri Lankans um, When I went to school in Toronto, I knew a few um, Do you, does Sri Lanka have the similar daisy characteristics That um, countries like India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh have, would you say?
1: I would say it's fairly fairly similar Especially among the, the Muslims I don't know how it is among uh, the other religions I didn't have that much contact with uh, people of those communities uh, but in general, South Asian culture is quite similar across the board. Uh, Sri Lankans, being from uh, being from an island, are generally more chilled out uh, and relaxed and even-tempered than uh, Pakistanis or Indians are. Pakistanis and Indians tend to be more uh, emotive and emotional, um, not to sort of make a racial stereotype, but in general, I'm not saying this is universal, but they tend to be more emot- um, emotive than Sri Lankans are.
0: Right. And we'll, we'll come back to this in a little bit. But, um, while you were at IIT, I know you had mentioned something about like a ring was a ring that your grandmother had given you or your mom, right?
1: Okay. So my mom's, uh, very superstitious. Uh, and in our culture, they have this thing of uh, finding out what the auspicious day is for every, you know, significant event or, you know, wearing, uh, you know, ta'wiz, the, the taweez. Yeah. I guess you call it
2: in Urdu. Talisman. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, so we have those, uh, uh, as well in our culture. And one of these things was, a it was a ring. Um, I don't know. I, I've seen some, uh, Desi and Pakistani people wear it as well. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. It's
3: huge. Thing. Uh, it's, it's not a, a, a ring, but we usually wear, uh, a cloth wrapped, uh, it's like a necklace that's yeah. around your neck. So
1: this ring, yeah, it's got a, it's got a hole in the back of it. To basically transmit the cosmic rays through your birth, birthstone. And this, I guess, brings you good luck, which is all a bunch of shirk, basically. Um, uh, what happens when you wear something like this is you come out of the uh, protection of Allah and you are left to the protection of the ring, which basically means that you're screwed. Yeah, uh, yeah. because, you know, you know, we make this dua in the morning. Um, yeah, you, yeah, you. Um, uh, basically, don't leave my affair to me for even the blink of an eye. Basically, take control of everything that goes on in my life. Now, you take a come out of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's uh, mercy and, and protection, and you've been left to the protection of this inanimate object that has zero power. Um, it, it's just a recipe for failure. However, I can't basically, I can't do anything like blame the ring for my failures. I still had control over my actions. But now the Muslim, the Muslim can do a lot of things with the tawfiq and uh, the protection of Allah that he might, that a non Muslim can't, uh, can't do. So you are now left to basically only the, the results of cause and effect. Cause and effect is still in, it's still, uh, still, um, in action right now because it's one of the sunan of Allah. So the, I'm still responsible for my actions and I still made the mistakes that I made. I just didn't have the protection of Allah to sort of guide me uh, in the, in, because of this ring.
0: On a quick segue, based upon what you study for in Islam in the last 10 years, do we believe in things like curse? like I mean... For example, like I'm sure Sim believes in the curse of the Billy Goat. If you know what that is, <laughs> you know. in uh, you you when you grew up in Chicago, you are probably a, maybe you follow the White Sox because you're on the South Side. But in Chicago, we got this thing where the Cubs haven't won a World Series in like a hundred years. Because Howard laughing because he's mm-hmm. the White Sox. They, they they kicked the Billy Goat out of they kicked the goat out of w- Wrigley Field, and that's why the owner of the goat made a curse and the Cubs haven't won and they've managed to lose in the most ridiculous ways possible too it's not even like they just are terrible they're terrible for the most part but when they're good they manage to lose in the most excruciating way like you couldn't even write a movie about some of the stuff that happens right would you agree Sam as this a Cubs is, fan
3: this is a year we're gonna
0: you know and they're, gonna probably win lose, it all. they're probably losing game 7 after blowing 8 nothing No, in, in we, the we have inning. the
3: best record <laughs> in the league currently Cubs fans out there do not lose hope so with that being said, uh, N- Nabil, based upon like I haven't
0: studied too much about this kind of stuff, uh, and you had the the Red Sox and their bambino. Cur- do these are, are things like this? Do they have some validity to things like where someone could put a curse on somebody, or and then they will like f- suffer futility for years? Is that legit?
1: Yo, the 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 evil eye is real. I don't know about curses of uh, into goats, but evil eye is real. Somebody <laughs> can give Goals. you evil eye, and then. And then you go through a lot of uh, problems because of that evil eye. It's why the uh, it's and it's mentioned in a hadith which I can't recall, so I won't uh, paraphrase
3: it. Um, that's why you're supposed to
1: say something. Yeah, when you when you see something of your brother that you like, you're supposed to make dua for him and ask Allah to bless him in whatever way you can uh so evil eye is definitely real and the way you protect yourself from evil eye is to make sure that you do your uh, dhikr in the morning and the evening and after salah the stronger your dhikr is the stronger your shielding is from from things like evil eye and magic
2: yeah and i think um, a curse is a is a general term right but um either it can come in the form of evil eye it can come in the form of of shayateen and you know may allah protect us there's individuals that use shayateen and they use jinn's to, uh, to take revenge on people. And, um, all of those come in the form of a certain type of curse, right? We just call it a curse, but there's all different, there are a bunch of different avenues. And that's why Rasulullah Sallallahu <laughs> Alaihi you know, Surah, Al-Falaq and Surah Al-Nas was revealed to protect him from evil omen and from black magic and from the jinns or the shayateen. And that's why we read it too. Um, but one thing I'm very interested in is in this whole process of um, you know, you experiencing life, and you had to become homeless. And was there a thought in your mind that, and, and there's a reason why I'm asking this. Was there a thought that came to you, and you kind, it kind of sparked some type of religiousness inside of you, or it brought you closer to Allah in this in this time of hardship? Because you have to go see what? your parents now, right? And many times when we're younger, and we we get a report card that we don't like, we start doing du'a to Allah. Oh Allah, take me out of this misery, right? Which alludes us to some verses in the Quran, but, oh Allah, take me out of this misery and I'll be the best person, I'll be the best Muslim. And I can imagine how, how, uh, excruciating that pain could have been just to have to face your, uh, parents after this whole process, right? So is there some type of experience that, you know, you, that it even crossed your mind or you even became close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this entire process?
1: honestly i don't think i don't think there was uh, i was just basically on my own you know just to give you how, just to give an example of how how bad i i was uh, one time, I bet my friend, who's a non-Muslim, he's a Hindu, he's a, just a nice guy from, uh, from India, where there's no life experience whatsoever. I bet my friend that if he, he had a beer, that I would start praying five times a day. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I mean, I'm laughing about it now, but it's just, just so bad. Uh, so he actually did drink the beer and i started praying five times a day for i don't know how long maybe it went on for about a year and i would show up to the the msa for fudger and the police guy would the security guard would let me in because it was just on on the second floor of the the building where the campus security office was <laughs> this is a um, funny story i like this <laughs> yeah so i got i got religious for like a little while based off of this bet, getting my friend to drink wow, alcohol. Wow, that is so interesting. Um, I never heard of this. this wait, cool. so
3: this is before you went broke, right? This is before. Okay.
1: Uh, eventually it didn't last. Probably those salah were not even, uh, Allahu alam, but those salah might not have even been accepted because of the, um, the battle way that I went about doing it. So, uh, yeah, the, just, this was just to give you an idea that I, I had no sort of inclination of um, being religious or turning to Allah. One thing that did help, I guess, that I would have been probably completely destroyed if not for for this was that I never, you know, became a, a murtad. I never apostated. I, I always still believed in Allah and, and, and uh, the Shahada and Rasulullah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. I do remember one time. Um, when I was trying to you know get my grades fixed up and, and probably this was the, the semester that I had my best uh, best grades was that I was having a hard time you know um, keeping up with the work and we were during finals time and I remember making dua just like you said, um, asking Allah's help for you know help to you know keep my grades up and that was probably the best semester the semester that I did best but still you know i had the ring on so i i was outside of allah's protection doesn't matter what i what i did uh the ring was still there even though i didn't know about it i only knew about this shirk aspect many many years later after i had you know become started practicing again
2: yeah and just a little bit i mean of uh, just for our listeners a clarification even though individuals uh, may be wearing a tawiz, or they may be wearing something like a good luck charm for instance which is something that a Muslim is not supposed to believe in but still Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with his infinite mercy is still going to protect these individuals um, because sometimes they don't know sometimes they're taught certain things and they're taught that the believing in these elements is a part of Islam and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala still continues to protect them Right? so it's so amazing that mm-hmm. the creator himself is making a contract with us one of the main thing we have to main things in this life we have to do is not associate partners with him, but still he still he's still gonna uh, um, you know protect us. So um, I don't think that we should uh, go towards that route. I mean, even thinking that just because I wore this, Allah was not protecting me. Alhamdulillah, Allah is always protecting us. He's even protecting those individuals who were the arch enemy of Rasulullah sallallahu to a certain degree and gave them time. To you know for Toba and gave them time to reconsider even until their last breath, right? So I think that you know alhamdulillah man you know I think, and and I'm seeing all of this as a benefit, even this these these trials that you went through because it's what it, it has made you today, what you are now, and people who are going through this same process you're going to be able to talk to them in a very natural manner and going to be able to you know consult them and let them know that you know everything's going to be fine and you know there's there's lots of benefit in all of this you know and even the low points that we have in our lives those are going to be gems for us later to, to strengthen us in our relationship with Allah you know
3: uh, and what would you say was in your mindset uh, your main hurdle to what did you feel like you had to overcome most psychologically at least Forget about religion for a second.
1: I, honestly, I think uh, the structure—the structure when I came back home, the structure that I had in my life—helped uh, a little bit in making sure that I, the thing that I focused on was, you know, getting my education back in order. But in terms of the religion, there was there was nothing because um, I still thought of myself as Muslim, and for you know a few years after I came back, I was still not practicing. But it was just that one action that I wrote about in my blog, you know, actually sitting down to read uh, the translation of the Qur'an that snowballed into me actually starting to practice again. There was no sort of psychological barrier. People sort of have this idea in their head that, um, you know, they've lost hope. And uh, I think the Sheikh mentioned uh, sort of uh, touched on that point a little bit earlier. But people sort of have this psychological block in their head that they've lost hope. But... The only cure to low Iman is uh, Ibadah. There's no, you can't change, uh, you can't change that through um, uh, some sort of psychological trick or, you know, some sort of pep talk. You need to actually do the Ibadah. And that starts off, you know, small and then it, it grows and grows and grows.
0: So let me ask you this. What made you pick up that Quran at that time?
1: I was trying to. I was trying to save money because. Uh, uh, <laughs> so I wanted to entertain myself with something that would keep me in the house and not spending money outside.
0: <laughs> That's not amazing. Like when I hear, a st- so I f- I feel like I'm talking to a twin who li- who like grew up in another part of the world, <laughs> literally. Because you and I were about to. You're probably what thirty five, thirty four years old, maybe.
1: Thirty. Yeah, thirty six now. Thirty six. Yeah.
0: I'm thirty four. Um, and it's very similar, like experiences, like school, like struggling in school. I'll tell you what, I was 19 years old. I'm in my dorm room once I had, I went to visit Columbus. I was at, I was at home for a few weeks. I got into an altercation with an old friend. I was ticked off at the world, ticked off at them. And I was literally just bored one night. And I had the translation of, uh, Malana Malditi, Malditi sitting on my shelf. And I was like, I might as well, like i just popped it open started reading never read the translation of my life and i was like hey man this is good stuff right here <laughs> and I, I like plowed through it in like a month i was going through, i was like spending an hour i wasn't doing homework but i was like reading an hour of quran and not translation at night and i i got through it all and i was like i started doing like okay i want to start forgiving people that even though i may have been the one wronged i probably still had a part to play in it right and when i think of these stories i'm like there is nothing that i did personally to deserve that right did you feel the same, like, you know, that's, I I see your story, it's like, this is tawfiq from Allah. On the flip side, there are people who are still not practicing the deen. And they're like, well, Allah didn't guide me, he didn't give me tawfiq, so it's, it's not my fault. How would you address that?
1: Okay, so there's this um, ayah in the Quran, uh, or a set of ayahs, I can't remember which surah it is, but... Uh, uh, say O my slaves who have transgressed against themselves, never lose hope of the mercy of Allah. So that is what that is the ayah. The ulama uh, say that is the most hopeful uh, ayah in the Quran for the believer. However, immediately after those two uh, ayat, and I think the Sheikh will uh, correct me because I can't remember right now off the top of my head. Basically, it tells you in order to achieve that mercy that vast and infinite mercy of allah for your for your for your sins you need to do something yeah so allah says you have to turn back to allah and you have to make tawbah. so each muslim has agency in in that we we do believe in destiny but we do believe that uh, we have actions that we can use to um, gain allah's favor so in, it, it, Allah always balances that mercy with the action to deserve that mercy. So you have to you have to make the first step. There, and there's a hadith qudsi: um, "I am as my uh, slave perceives of me. If he turns to turns his face to me, I turn my entire body to him." I'm paraphrasing here. So it's all about you taking that first step to gain Allah's uh, pleasure. And then eventually, Allah makes it easier and easier for you as your sins get wiped out or as your heart becomes cleaned, as your uh, nafs becomes more inclined or more trained to doing ibadat uh, and good deeds and staying away from sins. Allah makes it easier and easier for you to gain His, uh, His pleasure. And uh, it's, it's tawfiq from Allah, but at the same time, it's your actions, your agency as a Muslim that uh, gains your gains you Allah's favor.
3: I am this. I am as my slave thinks of me. is said, "How it is mm-hmm. translated?" As he perceives of me. Yeah. As he, yeah, as he perceives of me. And that that was a, a very powerful hadith when I was growing up. Uh, it just kind of changed my psychological understanding of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Where I always had one view of him, and I'm like, well, why am I viewing him at, in this? direction i I always you know growing up in a in indian pakistani household you're you're kind of always given a a, a viewpoint of what allah might be like right and it might not necessarily be exactly that but it's more kind of a harsher or or strict interpretation and um, i think when i realized that if i can Perceive Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with mercy as someone who's merciful and as someone who's forgiving of my sins and whatnot. That's, that was a huge psychological hurdle that I kind of was able to pass and then I was able to move forward in, in my really, religiosity. Were you, were you able to, uh, find anything in similar either in the Seerah or in the Quran that, that really Pushed you over and uh, kind of propelled you forward.
1: When I first started, I didn't know um, any hadith or any anything like this. It was just those few acts that I did that snow that snowballed. So just finishing reading that translation, and then eventually the, one day I was uh, awake at night and I couldn't sleep. So I decided, okay, why don't I just you know pray fajr to pass the time, and maybe I'll fall asleep after that. It, it wasn't even like it wasn't even, all, it was almost almost unconscious. I wasn't thinking about, um, you know, turning back to Allah in, you know, uh, in obedience and submitting to him and things like that. I was just doing these acts. So I think maybe a good lesson is that um, even if you don't feel it, because a lot of people are like, you know, I don't feel Allah when I pray, like, <laughs> why do you have to feel Allah when you pray you just pray you get what I'm saying like, I don't feel spirit the spiritual connection when I make dua I can't feel him this just seems so stupid to me whenever people would say that what are you talking about feel a spiritual connection is like is he like there like uh um you know just chilling with you when you're when you're when you're praying and when you're making dua it doesn't make it didn't make sense to me so it's just a matter of Continuing those acts of worship. I remember one uh, um, narration of I think Sofiana Athouri, where he talked about how he how he struggled in in al Layl for like 13 years until he felt the sweeten of sweetness of it. So it's just putting in the work. That's what I think. It's just putting in the work, no matter how you feel about it. Uh, you you know they have this concept in personal development where you basically fake it till you make it, where your actions. Uh, rather than your internal state changes your psychology.
2: Yeah, and I think uh, you touched upon something that's really important. Um, yeah, I think what what ends up happening to uh, some individuals is they start praying and they start reading the Quran, and they're waiting for this feeling. They're waiting for this enlightenment that they may have seen somewhere, possibly in a movie, or somebody may have you know verbally illustrated it to them. In a very nice way. And they're waiting for something to happen. And that takes it away from that your Creator wants you to do something. You know, regardless if you get a feeling or you don't get a feeling, that doesn't matter. Precedence is that your Creator wants you to do something. Right? And you, maybe you'll never get a feeling in your entire life. That's fine. Because the the main reason is not getting a feeling. But when Rasulullah talks about halawat al-Iman, the sweetness of Iman, he's talking about... Not literally feeling something internally, but getting a certain type of tranquility because you're satisfied with your creator and your creator is satisfied with you. Right. And uh, I think that's a very important point, Um, you know, and... I, I talked to some individuals and they wish that they get something. They hear, they see, read some books where there were, you know, some of the Salihin from the past, they'd be praying and there's a huge light that was emitted from the room. And I talked to a brother, his words were, I'm just doing this so I can see that light, you know? And I, I felt kind of sad for him, but at the same time, you know, you can't push them away because they're doing something good and you have to take those emotions and channel them properly, right? Right. So now you're, you're back in Sri Lanka,
0: um, you know, and you want to continue? Sri Lanka education? or Dubai?
1: I was in Sri Lanka for a few months, but then we move. I moved to Dubai to start uh, school back again.
0: Okay. So, and where did you end up going to school? I I understand you had some issues. First of all, trying to get accepted because of the uh, train wreck that happened at IIT.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I made the I made the mistake of showing this uh, showing this 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 G at the uh, at the administration office of American University of Sharjah my transcript. And he took one look at it and he says, no, you can't, you can't go to school here. He didn't even let me submit the application. Wow. (laughs) Because it was so bad. So then when I went to Middlesex University, I was like, okay, let me play this a bit smarter. I just showed them my A levels. Uh, I did my GCE A levels and I'm, I'm a nerd. So I did very well in those, uh, in, in, in my A levels. I actually got one of the highest ranked. Um, a levels in in the in the country, so I showed her that, and obviously she was quite impressed because most of the people coming to that university were scrubs uh, but then I had to sort of uh, negotiate my way through the the problem with the six years gap between when I went to high school and the time that I showed up at middlesex University anyway by the by, I did get accepted, but then They couldn't issue me a visa because I was uh, too old. I was 24 or 25 at the time. Um, So then my dad had to sort out a visa through a friend of his. We got like a residence visa uh, uh, for uh, an employee. So I came on as an employee in his friend's company. And then I stayed in uh, Dubai and went to school that way. So Middlesex, is that a British university with a campus there? Yeah, it's a British university um, from Middlesex in, you, in the UK, and they have, uh, they have a satellite, uh, campus in Dubai, in a place called Knowledge Village. I see. Now, what
0: did you, you, were you still doing chemical engineering, or now what did you decide to study?
1: I, I decided to pick an easy major, so I went with business administration, um, and I ended up graduating, uh, summa cum laude from, with, uh, with a degree in a Bachelor of Arts in Business Administration. Well, I, I said, Summa cum laude, but it's actually first class honors. It's the similar sort of uh, rank in the British system.
0: Sure. Now, now what year are we talking here when you're finished, and also where are you at with the dean at the same time?
1: Um, So, this was 2009 when I graduated, okay? And I had started practicing in maybe 2007 or 2008. I can't remember exactly. But at this point, I had, you know, grown my beard. I started growing my beard and it was, I, I think it was decently long at that point. And then I, uh, um, I believe by that time I had started shortening my trousers to elbows and i i caught a lot of crap from my parents for that um and in, and i was in that that time i was you know in my uh, religious you know your religious guy hamas that you don't want to hear anything from anybody and you you know this opinion is the only opinion and you got to do it come to find out many years later when i actually asked my teachers about it my teacher was like uh, no, you should have shortened your beard and left the trousers because your obligation to your parents is more important.
0: <laughs> wow, that's uh has another crazy like similar similarity. I I dealt with the same thing. I grew my beard out. I'd wear a turban everywhere, even on campus. I was like, these kufar can't hold me down. I'm wearing a thobe and a turban on Juma, you know. And yes. I, I even had my 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 dad bought me an interview suit to go on job interviews, sure. and I had those hem too. And my mom saw me, she's like, you ruined the pants. <laughs> And now actually they're trend they're back in trend now. They're actually it's like <laughs> that's like a trendier thing to show some ankle. But uh yeah. were you following a specific group, if I may ask, at the time or ideology of Islam when you started becoming a little religious, or were you just like going with the flow and just people around you just did you, they were doing that, you just followed them?
1: When I when I started practicing, I had no access to um, people who knew what they were doing. Everything I was looking up was on the internet. And I don't know how it is over there, but on the internet at that time, um, uh, the, the Salafis had it on lockdown, basically, yeah. uh, with the, uh, with the websites and was and all the things. So they were a bit advanced, uh, with the elect, you know, with the, with the dawah and the internet. So most of the information that you were getting was sort of, um, had this specific, um, angle to it. And it was uh, basically you just whatever the hadith is, you just follow that and you don't want to hear a word in edgewise uh, so whatever you know hadith that you've list that you've got the translation of that's exactly what you follow and that's and that's that so when you get that sort of information without a sort of filter from somebody who's studied the tradition and understands how to um, how to apply it correctly to your context, then you end up with this sort of. And then on top of that, if the guy is just practicing and he really is, he's got that um, initial you know zeal of religiousness with him uh, from the iman boost that he has, combine those two, and then you have a recipe for disaster. And you end up with you know extremely religious kids or trying to be religious. They're not religious uh, in the strictest sense because they're having a lot of problems with the people around them uh, that uh, you know bleeds over to their family, bleeds over to their friends, and all of those things. Yeah, you're, those websites, man, were
0: pretty high-tech, right?
1: I remember them websites.
0: I, I don't know they're still around. I don't go to them anymore. But they have a high-tech website, and then you go, try to go through a Masala, and it'd be like a garage. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm not even kidding. Uh, there was one website, very famous website, ran out of Canada. And it wasn't a garage. And I showed up there. But it was like an average, you know. But, like, you would think by the way they were in their website and everything that it was going to be, like, super high class when you got there. And it wasn't. <laughs> I see you guys are similar in that realm too. <laughs> no, I, I used to. What I used to do was, I used to like print out, I said these binders, right? I still have them back home at my parents' house where I would have dividers with colored dividers. It would be like Aqidah, Menhej, refutations, oh, yeah. Fiqh. And I had I'd print trend. out these articles, these PDFs. <laughs> and so i had have a whole binder. My refutation binder was like a full binder, like a full three inch <laughs> binder. You know, I had like they'd divide it into different groups.
3: You know, Neo Jahmites <laughs> and Qutubiyah. Neo
1: Jahmites. <laughs> Just the first, the
3: second. Oh, man. No, uh, what's so funny is that now you'll hear selfies, selfie scholars who will say, you know, it's amazing how people try to interpret Hadith themselves and. And they do it without any scholarly advice, and I think to myself, "I'm like, you. It was your camp who started this from the beginning, and now you're getting mad at us for doing it."
1: Yeah, it's like they're getting mad now because this, uh, this of this Frankenstein that they created. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs> it's kind of like the Republican Party.
1: And the problem is, you know what? You know what happened?
3: By the way, we love feeds, where uh, we're not against uh, anyone. It's out of humor. It's out of this humor. Just, just we're just having fun we represent every? I used every- to, I
1: used to, uh, I used to consider myself a Salafi, but I don't anymore. So, so basically what happened is they didn't have, uh, so they had the internet on lockdown and the people on the internet is all laymen. Okay. So now they don't have any intellectual challenge to, um, sort of correct any mistake, mistaken interpretations that they have. However, there was an intellectual counter that sort of, Built up steam from the uh, traditional, um, of actually studied, study the tradition and the people who follow that sort of path. And now they're on, they're on the defensive. So their, their opinions have, you know, uh, moderated to a, to a degree. So before, you know, tasbih was, uh, was, uh, bid'ah and kufr. But now it's like, tasbih is like a difference of opinion. We only think it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the wrong opinion. That's it. So they've moderated their opinions based on the intellectual challenge that came up to came up to them.
0: So how long were you in this phase for? Usually it lasts about 2 years before you like burn out or like leave the dean or do you upgrade. <laughs> leave the dean.
1: <laughs> <laughs> leave the dean. <laughs> 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 go
2: ahead.
0: That's just true actually.
2: <laughs> no, no, go
0: ahead. No, go so, ahead. so yeah, well, I, what I was saying is that there's a book that our brother named Imam Luqman Ahmed wrote called the... And I think he comes from a Salafi background. He may still be... Consider himself Salafi, but he's like... He talks about the modern-day Salafi cult, especially about, like, the communities in, like, inner-city North America or in Birmingham. Did I say that right? Birmingham. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, Toronto, etc. Uh, yeah, yeah. And talks about how... Yeah, the average lifespan of a Salafi is about this, this, and this. And then you will either become... The ex- after that phase, you will either, like... A few of them will stay hardcore... But then a few will, you'll become a moderate, reformed Salafi, you'll leave the dean. There's various scenarios that happen. So,
3: I mean, it, it's true. I think there's a science behind it that someone should probably do their Ph.D. on. <laughs> I think that's, a, that's true for a lot of people who are part of movements and whatnot, that once that, that fire goes away, either you just become kind of inactive and irrelevant in the community and you're just kind of, you know, trying to make some money, building your career or then, or you become reformed and you try to get a more, you have a more balanced perspective. I think, uh, a few of us in this, in this room have that kind of, uh, we fall into that category, right, Mahin?
0: My- yeah, I would say, I, th- I think, I, think- Chick, I, mean, I don't know about yours, but you went overseas pretty early in life, so that probably, you probably got that out of your system early. Like, people who actually studied the Dean, the earlier you actually studied, like, formally, I think, Is when you really with a teacher, then you yeah your system it turns out
2: creases really well. If
0: you uh like learn, because I remember, (laughs) I'll kid you not, I was I was with some and after this point we'll kind of move on because we we don't we want to you know cover a lot more material. I would be in a masjid with these brothers and they'd be like they would say something like. You know, those brothers over there, they memorize Quran and stuff, but, you know, their Akira ain't right. So And we memorize Usulat alata. I can't recite Fatah properly, but that's not that big of a deal, you know what I mean? Or like the Hizbiyun, know, all they talk about is Akhlaq and their kutpas, man. That's how you know it's a Hizbi Kutba, because they talk about Akhlaq. You know, so and these are re- I'm I'm not making this stuff up, by the way, this is like legitimate stuff. Like I could go back there now and I bet they're still talking about like, yeah, you know, Sayyid Qutub said this, etc. cetera, Allah. Ta'ala. You know, they wouldn't they wouldn't say that Rahimallah, but they would like, they're still talking about the same stuff and still can't read Fatah properly. But uh, so moving along. So you've you've progressed through this phase and now you are you've graduated and you're in a working world. At some point you start a family, right? Like talk talk about the next phase of your life.
1: So uh, I started working uh, around uh, February of 2010 or the beginning of 2010 and then by um, October I think after Ramadan I was uh, I was married um my wife is a um, a German convert and we have uh, three daughters now we've been married uh, for 6 years
0: Alhamdulillah Alhamdulillah so and then, as far as work goes, you're now an employee. But are you still an employee? So talk to us. A little, like, are are you a free, I know you said you do some freelance copywriting. For you have a company called Dropkick. Like, what's that all about? Like, how do you? Are you like? Are you playing both fields, where you're an employee and also having a business
1: on the side? Yeah. So I'm, I have a nine to five. I'm a corporate policy analyst at a multinational shipping company uh so that's my 9 to 5 but uh last uh, late last year i started uh freelancing as a copywriter uh and i'm sort of growing that uh, side business um and planning to transition to freelancing full time by mid uh, mid next year sometime so i still have my my day job but i also do the uh the copywriting business on the side Plus um, the stuff that I do for becoming the Alpha Muslim.
3: Yeah, so uh, let's move on to becoming the Alpha Muslim. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're trying to achieve from that?
1: Okay, so becoming the Alpha Muslim has been on my in my head for a, for about maybe a year now. I've just recently, you know, launched it. What yeah. I noticed was that there was very little content uh, online that was written for and targeted to Muslim men. Either you have generic advice that was sort of written for a a dual gender audience or you have advice directed toward women. Whatever advice you did have for men was basically, um, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, berating berating Muslim men and and lecturing them or get you together Muslim men, that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, So that, that was the sort of content that I saw. And what I did see was a lot of the... Editors of these websites are f- feminist Muslim women, and um, the majority of the writers of these websites are, you know, Muslim women who are either feminist or feminist inclined or brainwashed with feminist concepts. And you have uh, websites that were, you know, dedicated to Muslim women. So from all sides, the online discourse is dominated by women and women's issues with very little content for men. Now, I didn't just uh, start this website because I thought of that. I actually did research. I spoke to. I, I did a survey on SurveyMonkey and sort of, sort of get a, got a lay of the land to see if there was other people that thought that way. And uh, it did seem like there was this sort of feeling that there wasn't enough relevant content for men, because you know, guys. We talk a different way when we talk about, you know, issues and, and solving problems. Do, do you feel like that? We, we talk, talk a certain different way.
3: Oh, absolutely. I, I think, um, we, we, the, the whole concept of, of male masculinity is, is something much more harder to talk about being a Muslim man because we're the, the stereotypical mm-hmm. demonic man who beats his wife and, yes, who, who does, um, yes. um, you know, Crazy, impu- yeah, crazy, yeah, crazy impulsive acts, but people don't realize that, you know, we have, you know, things that define us as, and, and we're kind of feeling like we're being pressured into being someone who we're really not right now. The- yeah, so this
1: is why I started uh, becoming the Alpha Muslim. And it basically, the main concept is don't be ashamed of who you are, the man that you are. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created you. As this man, and he gave you certain rights and responsibilities, and you 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 should own those rights and responsibilities, and not be ashamed of it, regardless of what society is telling you to do or what other Muslim women are telling you to do. Um, you have that um, sort of status that Allah S W T gave you. You just have to own it and use it correctly.
2: Um, you mentioned something very interesting. You said that uh, you know, kind of like men have to reclaim, uh, you know uh and they have to kind of reclaim what's happening in the world and and be men again to a certain degree but many uh feminists can argue and say that well this is uh predominantly male run world anyway so you're just trying to establish more authority by having a website about alpha male and you're making men you know be even more over or have a false sense of masculinity to control women Right.
1: Yeah. And they're probably uh, no, you, tell, you tell me you guys live in a, you guys live in America. Can you criticize feminism in America as a Muslim man? Can you say anything to uh, can you see, even say anything to a Muslim women about how they should behave and how they should act without having a, a basically a storm rain down on you and basically almost get lynched on the Internet?
2: I mean, you shouldn't have to. I mean, women are very oppressed anyway. And it's I think it's all our fault. You know, <laughs> it's all men's fault anyway. You know, poor women, they have to go through so much
0: because of us. I mean, and they're relegated to a closet with, like, the pray in with, like, right, the stains.
3: Well, <laughs>
1: <laughs> No, see, the, whatever happens, women have evolved a certain instinct on how to survive and get what they want, okay? They've always been able to handle their business in the, any situation that they're in. And, and it, you, you know how um, women have this uh, sort of, a sixth sense of when a guy's being creepy. Yeah. They've, they've sort of through, uh, you know, thousands of years of being around men and dealing with men, they've evolved that sense of, um, you know, that sixth, or you could call it a spidey sense to protect themselves from, uh, from harm. Yes. So they've, and so they have all of these um, socialized behaviors and, and instincts uh that help them you know uh, uh, you know survive in whatever environment that they're in mm-hmm. and rather than trying to change that they should be embracing it which is basically what feminism is trying to do is trying to negate the natural femininity of a woman and make her be more like a man
2: yeah no that's a very awesome uh way of looking at it too you're right it's it's taking their nature that's meant to protect them and make them smarter um and making it feel like it's nothing and they're not going to be anything until they're kind of like men right no
3: and, and nabil we we hear about this all the time at our university campuses and whatnot there'll be some woman who will be you know on a loudspeaker basically and telling all the sisters how they're being oppressed uh, behind a, a curtain or behind uh, a you know that part that part of the problem. So yeah, when reality in reality the girls are actually feeling comfortable behind a part of the. In many cases, I'm not saying in every case that's a that's the case, but in many cases, uh, at least anecdotally, that we found out from our own experiences, we found that. A lot of sisters actually feel very comfortable behind there, and I feel like sisters themselves have been kind of pushed into that corner where there's some someone on a loudspeaker kind of telling them who they should be and trying to go going against their the natural being, right? And just to add on to that, the one who's on the loudspeaker is making something a
2: problem that's not a problem. That's what, yeah, that's yeah. What I'm saying. And those people, they didn't even think it was a problem before, but now they're convinced that it's a problem now, and now they have to find a remedy and a solution. Exactly. And that's where things get reckless, right? Yeah. And if they fight back, the, they'll be like, "Well, they were raised in an oppressive society, exactly,
3: an oppressive yeah.
0: household, so that they've been brainwashed." That's yeah. what the libs will say about the yeah. sisters who are trying to follow the sun.
1: They call it internalized. You said they'll say you women have internalized misogyny and you've basically been trained to hate yourself awesome. and oppress yourselves. Right. <laughs> yes. Now, but actually, um, I'm against having the porta. You know why? I would rather have the women in the same room as the men. You know why? Because that's the only time they behave themselves. <laughs>
2: Wait,
3: what do you have mean you they behave themselves? The, have you ever
1: been to the women's section in a masjid when it's closed off from the men and the men can't hear or see them?
3: They make a big it's mess. A I war heard. zone. It's a war zone. No, no, I know. No. There's uh, a lot of you know, infighting. Kids,
1: uh, kids screaming. Women are talking, not listening to the khutbah. They bring, you know, if they coming to Taraweeh, they bring like food and coffee, and it's like a big party for them rather than actually coming to do Ibadah. Right <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> we're they- gonna so
3: much trouble
2: after this. No, episode. I, I actually, I actually like this. So so let's let's keep talking. About-
1: yeah, so if you put them in the room with the the men, they will actually they're going to actually behave themselves and actually pay attention to the khutbah or the lecture or, you know, do the ibadah while they're waiting for in-between salah or things like that.
0: Alhamdulillah. So other than owning females, what can we benefit from the Alpha Muslim pro- the Alpha Muslim project? Owning
2: females? That came off so wrong. But anyways, go ahead, yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I
0: like to, I'm signing up, so.
1: Based Honestly, on- I, 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 the reason I created the Becoming the Alpha Muslim was to, you know, because there's a lot of uh, uh, websites online that are talking about you know Islamic things or fatwas or you know giving you ayat and hadith and things like that for everything I don't want to be that kind of website because that'll just be every other website what I want is to actually give men um, personal development um, uh, content so I don't know if you guys are into like Tim Ferris and Ramit, Ramit Sethi or, oh yeah
3: or yeah how? Tim Ferris was oh, one of our been... uh, inspirations for starting this podcast yeah
1: yeah, so all of these content, this content is amazing, but there is a slight, there is a niche there where I can come in and give you similar, uh, content, um, from an Islamic, from a Muslim perspective. Now, I'm not trying to be, uh, basically, you know, 10 tips on productivity from the Quran and the story of ex-prophet. I'm not going to do that because that's basically, I'm using, it's like, basically, it's sort of cliche. I don't know if that's the way it just feels to me. I'm using the, you know, the content of the the experts on this field. It's, I'm not going to make it Islamic personal development or Islamic productivity, or I'm not going to Islamicize it. It's just going to be productivity. And the hadith that uh, uh, a Muslim is most uh, uh, entitled to a, saying, a statement of wisdom, wherever he finds it, it's like, I'm sorry, wisdom is the lost property of the believer. Wherever he finds it, he is most entitled to it. So whatever good that, you know, these sort of people say, we're going to, we're going to use it. And if it's compatible with Islam, we'll go with it. And if it's not compatible with Islam, that's what becoming the alpha Muslims for, to sort of sift through what's good and what's not. So what you're going to get is basically personal development with a Muslim twist, re- relevant to a Muslim context, relevant to a millennium Muslim men specifically, and I wouldn't be I won't be writing with women in mind. No, that's and that, I think what you what you're talking about the pro, this this project
2: and this initiative is indirectly Islamic. Meaning, you're not saying you're not saying this is the Islamic uh, uh, personality or the way to to become a Islamic person, but. Even before Islam, um, we have to be human beings Because if somebody becomes a pure human being Then Islam unfolds himself and becomes the fitrah They see it as the fitra, the uh, natural intuition of the human being But if somebody um, is doesn't understand what being a human being is naturally e- Even some of the concepts of Islam are s- somewhat alien to them Right. So if somebody can be a human being first Right, and I think that's what your initiative is—is is just be a human being. If you're a man now, this is how you know through experience on how to be a a male, a man. Right. And in that process, obviously, the, uh, it, the, the Islamic concepts and the understanding of Islam start unfolding to an individual, and it becomes easier to understand and easier to implement, right?
1: Perfect. So, you have to be... So, now let's put it into becoming the alpha Muslim terms. You have to be a man before you can be a gentleman. Does that make sense?
2: Very nice, yes.
1: So, that's basically the entire thing about... That's the entire shtick of the, the website. MashaAllah.
3: Na- Nabil, what I love about... Your website and, and this this message that you're trying to bring to to young Muslims, um, and, and Muslim ma- males in particular, is that it's a it's a frame of thought that you can be opinionated, be being a confident Muslim man, uh, who has opinions who who's able to throw out new ideas, even though they they might be wrong, but you should be able to have that discourse with. The community without being, becoming the black sheep. For example, we've had, um, scholars in the past, like, for example, Sheikh Ahmed ibn Nihumbal. He was uh, someone who went against the grain of society, but he challenged, uh, ideas and principles to the point where he went to prison for it. We don't have that anymore. What we, what happens in our community is we get ostracized and we get uh, labeled as, you know the, the 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 nut house, or uh, what 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 are your feelings on that? Very interesting point, man. So
1: I I've noticed this uh, a lot uh, when I'm on uh, Reddit. So Reddit has a Islam sub forum, yeah, and it's mostly millennial uh, millennial Muslims, uh, Western in general, and most of them are very young. Most of them learn their Islam from YouTube. And they have generally quite liberal opinions on what Islam is and isn't. And if you, as a, as someone who's more, I guess, uh, mainstream or orthodox, and you try to present those opinions, uh, you're going to get railroaded and dogpiled, and they're going to downvote you into oblivion because they have not, they have not sort of internalize this way of discussing things openly and having an open discourse. One of the reasons and, and that's one of the reasons why I'm sort of um because I'm a I'm very conservative. Um I'm trying to follow, you know, the Islam that I find in the four hubs and stick to that as close as I can. But I'm think I'm thinking now that maybe I should um engage with more of these heterodox voices like Muslim feminists and things like that, because if we try to silence each other, none of us is going to, none of us is going to speak. So if I try to, if I try to silence a Muslim feminist or a Muslim feminist tries to silence me, nobody's going to have any discussion whatsoever. And that's basically what's happening. I think in the Muslim community, we've grown a very thin skin and we're unable to discuss these things openly in a constructive way, even if we disagree and that's what I'm noticing now online because I, this this website has just been out for like three months and I already have so many haters, it's not even funny.
3: No, Nabil, like, for example, on Reddit, what will happen is if if someone doesn't like what you have to say, they'll vote in like a block. They won't even care what you actually said, but as long as my favorite uh, Redditor, who I seem to agree with most of the time, if he doesn't like you, I won't like you. I won't even give two seconds of... of uh, of thought to whatever you're saying, and and actually I looked at some of the, the threads that you had participated in. And I'm like, what did Nabil say? There's nothing really here that that warrants the, the kind of hate that you got on on a couple of those threads. Um, so it, it was, it just confirmed what my own uh, feelings that instead of trying to debate ideas, we try to get our our followers and and our uh, posse kind of. Against you, and, and rather than yes. have any any type of intellectual debate on anything,
1: yes, okay, I'll give you a perfect perfect example of this. This is a this is a good good point that you brought up. So I'm on Twitter, okay, and there's this uh, Muslim reader. Do you remember that hashtag uh, Muslim Converts? Listen, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So I tweeted some provocative things there, uh, basically because what happens is Muslim converts tend to uh, look down on the culture of the Muslims back home and it's not it's not just Muslim converts it's most of the Muslims that live in the West okay so I tweeted some things that sort of point out some of the double standards here that um, you're saying that uh, you know Muslims in India and Pakistan are backwards but your own your own manifestation of Islam is based on your own culture which is living in America so I made a few tweets that were quite provocative in nature, and I got basically dogpiled for for that as well. One of these guys he went to my website and he didn't dis he disagreed with you know the entire concept because I guess he's a male feminist or whatever he's a he's a Muslim convert um so he screenshotted um the 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 head the headline from my landing page uh, never again be ashamed of." Your Muslim masculinity, even if society around you is trying to castrate you. And then he posted that screenshot with basically an insulting comment about my website. Now, he's a Muslim. He could have, if he had a problem with my views and he disagreed, he could have added, he could have spoken to me directly, but he chose this passive aggressive way of doing it, where basically taking the screenshot and insulting me to his followers. Exactly. So I saw that, okay, and I. I called him out on it, and I I went really hard. Okay, I would never step to a Muslim on purpose, but if you want to attack me, then I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna hit back hard. Um, even even though that's not strictly Islamic anyway, but online uh, you, you basically you get like humiliated if you don't de- defend yourself. So I went really really hard. I was like, Is, do, do they teach you this uh, passive aggressive passive aggressiveness in jur- journalism school? I told him to grow a pair. Because he's this guy's a journalist. He's like a, he like he's like a journalist for Vice, hmm. and he's uh, he's acting this way, yeah. And this and you expect these people to be, you know, have journalistic ethics and things like that. So I went really hard with him for a couple of tweets. He couldn't handle it. Basically, he uh, tweeted a, a tweet that basically was encouraging his followers to come and get me rather than rather than fighting his battles himself. And then I think he muted me after that. Yeah. So that's a perfect example of. The inability to actually discuss a difference and resorting to, you know, passive, aggressive, very thin skin behavior instead of actually dis- actual discussion.
0: Nabil, this also reminded me, what are your th- Remember the whole hashtag Fire Abu Issa campaign a couple years ago? You familiar <laughs> with that, uh, Sheikh Abu Isa yeah, yeah, I was
1: there. I, I was in the mix.
0: Oh yeah, no kidding. Tell us about your perspective. Like, how were you involved in that, and like, what was your whole vantage point like?
1: Me, I was laughing at the feminists who were uh, who were losing their losing their ish over it. <laughs> um, so, I, I think it's a, it's a problem between uh, the American uh, sense of humor and the British sense of humor because the British people make fun of everything. It's not even like, it's not even a thing. That's just like normal. They take, they take the piss out of everything. So it was, it seemed like normal to me what he was, what Abu Waisa was talking about. But then when you got, when you get this sensitivity of, um, these, are, there's an American uh, sensitivity was related to the poli- political correctness culture that you have. And on top of that, it's like Muslim women. And on top of that, it mus- it's Muslim women feminists. So it's like the trifecta of, Thin skinnedness and taking offense. So this is what this is why why that blew up. Um, So from my side, I was just laughing. Abu Raisha, from his perspective, he should he should never have apologized. To be honest, when you apologize to these people, they get emboldened and they get um, they feel they get empowered to attack you more. Uh, Because really, he didn't really he he didn't say anything uh, wrong. It was just joking, yeah yeah, they, you would you could say that his jokes were um, a bit tasteless and a bit no they
3: were waiting in the wings they they were waiting in the wings they they're part of this uh, social justice movement, and mm. they're kind of just waiting there and waiting for the right opportune time to bring out their views and they saw him lightheartedly talking uh and everyone who Every rational person who read his comments at that time, they knew he was kidding, and they knew they saw the context that he was talking in, and they just mm-hmm. used that as an opportunity to bring out their views and, and kind of uh, start bashing him. Everyone saw through it, and it, it, I, I'm guessing most of these people weren't even past the age of 21 or 23. Really?
1: You know, I agree with you that uh, it was basically, uh, it was co-opted by a bunch of, uh, a particular group of individuals. But, I mean, most of these women aren't even, you know, practicing most of them. If yeah, I they're not directly from a few years ago. So, like, uh, they co-opted. And then on top of that, they got some shiuch involved when the shiuch should have, you know, waited and got all the facts straight before, you know, making, making statements, uh, after jumping to conclusions. So, it, it was a big mess all of, all around. I think in situations like, like this, everybody needs to take a chill pill rather than become incensed over tweets, basically.
2: But you gave us something very practical for the real world and for someone to look at things differently. You said that he shouldn't have apologized, right? Um, because if he apologizes, right, there's many things that can happen. Now, I'm pretty sure that this is something that has to do with the content of, of Alpha Muslim, right? Is when something occurs and even though you're joking and you didn't even... It was completely misconstrued what you said. You shouldn't have to apologize for something like that, right? Yeah, so... I mean, this is practical. People, this is this is gonna... This, yeah. yeah, this this helps people on many different realms understanding this these concept. People,
1: they, yeah. These people were gonna... They're gonna... They hate Abu Raisa anyways, okay? What does... What... What does it help for him to basically uh kowtow to them or or uh, show weakness to them when whatever he does they're not gonna they're gonna hate him anyway? Okay, he gets no benefit from it. Um, basically, the this is a this is something that you have in British culture they say never complain and never explain, okay, and it's like a, a rule for men to live by, uh, so. Whenever situations like this happen, don't apologize because they're gonna they they're, they don't have any al zan for you anyway. They're always gonna look at what you say with with sual They don't give you the benefit of the doubt. For people like this, there's no there's no explaining what you said to them. They're always going to look at it negatively, which is why when I get uh, when people sort of attack me for things I say, I never apologize. Sometimes I don't even reply. I don't give them time of day because I know these people their atta- their their criticism is not sincere. It's not coming from a place of wanting to understand what I'm saying and trying to disagree agreeably. They're criticizing me because they want to attack me. So for those people, I don't give them the time of day. So it, what Abu Raisa should have done was. Basically, hold his ground and um, t- told those people, "Look, it was just a, I was. Everybody understands what I meant. If you don't understand it, then go get a dictionary."
0: Right? Do you think in America, like in America, I would have to say maybe that the brothers who support these feminists are they think it's a, maybe a way to pick up chicks easier because they're on their side.
1: In the and with the non-Muslims, they call these people white knights. But since we're uh, we're Muslims, I call these people coconut knights. <laughs> I like that (laughs) coconut. So these guys, I mean, like these guys, I I don't know why uh, this. Okay. See, there's this thing where basically if you disagree with a woman, they say that you're like, they call you insecure and that you're not a real man. Like where where did this come from? Why well, I have to agree with the woman in everything she says? That doesn't make sense to me. And they'll bring you, you know, the the ayat and the hadith, and say, okay, this is the way the prophet was with women. But he was like that with sahaba, and sahaba are not you. You're not sahaba. Okay, if you're gonna act, if you're gonna act right, you, people will treat you right. You know, if you're not gonna act right, what do you expect from people? You're gonna expect them to just. Uh, sit there and take it when you you know provoke them and provoke them provoke them every day. The problem is, as Muslim and in and men in general, we're socialized to be stoic and take whatever comes our way, whatever harm comes our way, like basically quote unquote men. And when you do defend yourself, that's looked at as like strange because. Normally, the guy is supposed to just take whatever comes his way and just go about his business. So when you start speaking out and you start saying, okay, hold on, there's this social contract here that is being broken between us. You're not fulfilling your responsibilities to me. So why do you want me to fulfill my responsibilities to you? And then when you start questioning that, then the, the default is they start questioning your manhood when all you're doing is shining a light on a double standard.
2: Mm-hmm. Very interesting.
0: Cool. As for Alpha Muslim, uh, that, that whole program. So let's say, are you kind of like a life coach then for b- brothers? Is that an accurate assessment?
1: Would you say? No, it's not a, it's not a teacher, a student. Uh, it's not a classroom. It's more of a study group uh, because I'm not an Alpha Muslim. Uh, the website is called Becoming the Alpha Muslim. I'm a long way from where I need to be. Whatever I learn, I'll be sharing with the, the readers and, and I would want them to share what they learn with me and we'll improve together. So it's not a, it's not a teacher student relationship. It's a student student relationship and we're all improving together. So So if you look at the, um. No, sorry, go ahead. If you look at the, the email course that we have, Alpha Muslim Mindset, that's you know it's worded in a very fancy uh, way with you know marketing and copywriting but basically the first lesson lesson is understanding the basmala the second lesson is understanding ya kana abu wa ya the uh, third lesson is um understanding ihsan uh, the fourth lesson is understanding um uh, the dua and the fifth lesson I missed one of the lessons but basically it's very simple uh, concepts in Islam that for me they basically represent uh, light bulbs going off in my head when I understood them and they give you like a mental model that you can use to view the world it's like a basically, basically like an Islamic set of sunglasses that you put on and you can look at the world through them uh, and it helps you navigate with um with less mental energy whatever happens in your life you'll know to how to default to the islamic mindset
2: so if people want to do or find research on on this subject they they will find it on your website i'm assuming becoming the alpha muslim
1: yeah so i mean they don't need to read becoming the alpha muslim to do it they can they can study personal development on their own but the key is that you want to have the islamic paradigm in your head already so you can sift through uh, the islamic stuff from the non-islamic stuff and and use only what is compatible with with islam i'll give you an example Uh, within the personal development you know community there's this whole thing of mindfulness meditation and all of these weird meditation concepts Mm -hmm. that stuff we can't use that yeah but if you don't know that, you know, mindfulness meditation is incompatible with Islam, you're gonna if and you and you're not critical about it, you might start using it, and that's not really a good thing.
2: And mindfulness uh, just just that's that uh, breathing exercise that you do to concentrate on your thoughts or something like that, right? And take out and make your mind empty or something. It's something to
0: that it's, it's
1: a little bit more than that, but it basically has a shirky concept behind it where you become like a god basically
0: so essentially it's kind of are you familiar with like mastermind courses yes i am so is it is it kind of on that same wavelength where it's like a
3: mastermind group would you say uh, can, can you elaborate on that because i think a lot of our listeners don't know what what you're talking about well mastermind yeah, what is a mastermind? Uh, it's just basically a
0: group where you like i, I for example i did a, a mastermind group a few years ago with a, a friend we we'd study the book called the 21 irrefutable laws of leadership by john c maxwell And you had one moderator, or coordinator, and then we would cover one chapter every week and then discuss amongst ourselves, like, what we got out of it and, like, try to understand how we could practically implement uh, some of those uh, various concepts. That's pretty cool, actually. Yeah, so there's a, uh, you know, so it's a pretty uh, interactive way of learning. And some of these, some of the, like, the top mastermind groups... For example, I think Tony Robbins might have one. These are like fifteen, twenty thousand dollars to get into, and there's this huge like, and there's application and stuff. So some of the ones in at least the ones in the United States with some of these uh, productivity or self help gurus they they have. So are yeah, it- I
1: think that's pretty close to uh, pretty close to what we're what we're going to be doing. Uh, but the focus is basically um, I'm going to make it more practical uh, stuff that you can take action on immediately. Um, and I'll be talking, about, I won't be talking about every single thing. I'll be talking about just maybe four or five categories of things that are important in your life, like education, health, um, career, money, relationships. Those are the five, you know, major things that, uh, you know, affect the life of a Muslim male. So I'll only be talking about those things. And it's basically a learning experience. So as I learn, I'll be sharing what I learned with you and you'll I suppose learn from learn from me as well. I see. Um, for example, I'm in the process of, you know, memorizing the Quran. So as I learn, as I finish, I might, you know, write content about, you know, how to how my journey of memorizing the Quran, maybe people can benefit from that.
0: Right. You know, so right now I actually wanted to pick your brain a little bit about it cuz uh, you have kids, right? Nabil Yes. Uh how three many daughters? Uh two daughters you said?
1: Three daughters. Three daughters,
0: three. mashallah, mashallah. And you're married, you've got a full-time job, you've got dropkick, you're studying the deen with uh Mishaykh, and you're doing Quran and Arabic. How like not not to divulge everything from the alpha uh, male uh program, but like can you give us some our listeners some insights on how you're managing all that?
1: Uh so you want to basically make systems, create systems in your life that work even when your motivation is uh, low and your energy is low. Uh, the, one of the easiest things to do is have a morning routine and an evening routine. So just for example, just from my life, the evening routine is I uh, read the pages that I'm about to memorize the next day yeah, and the morning routine is I memorize the the new memorization. Just one example for memorizing Quran. You can apply that to any of your goals in life. Uh, when you if you if you make a morning and evening routine. As for studying the religion, I stopped almost all of my classes. The only thing I do is uh, memorize Quran, I learn Arabic, and. I do a a fiqh class because that's immediately relevant to my daily, daily life. So don't try to do too much. Uh, Extend the timeline a bit. So your your first priorities are actually Quran and Arabic. So if you're not, you know, if you're not trying to, you know, uh, learn tajweed, uh, correct, uh, master your tajweed and memorize Quran and you're not learning Arabic, then that's probably what you should work on first. After you've actually um, learned the basic essentials that you need to learn, uh, in terms of aqidah and in terms of your daily practice uh, of uh, fiqh. Cool.
0: Now you're in Dubai. Are you studying privately with people, or is it online? I we got your your referral through Sheikh Hamza Magbul, Like, do you have a relationship with him, for example, that you're able to like pursue these studies?
1: I I do my stuff mostly online. I've I've done live classes with my te- with some of my teachers before. For example, I did a. Uh, um, a course of over a year with uh, um, a local student of knowledge, his name is Muhammad Tim Humble, um, and he was teaching uh, aqidah and things like that. Most of the aqidah books I learned uh, locally with some of the teachers, uh, but my, my aqidah books are uh, basically the, the Salafi, uh, Salafi books that we learned Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahab, Al-Usulah 3, Qawad Kitab Al-Tawheed, Al-Islam, and Kashf Al-Shubuhat. Uh, so I mean, it was beneficial in that it uh, it fixes any problems that might be have, but you just need to be a bit. You need someone to read it with you critically, because there are some mistakes in there. Um, this is I wouldn't go. I won't go into the details, but there are some mistakes in there that could lead to uh, you know extremist ideas about other Muslims. So those are the only things that I studied live, but everything else is online. So I do for Arabic. I do a Sharia program with Mufti Yusuf Mullan. Who's in Toronto? And Fiq, I do. Uh, I have. I study with uh, Ustad Ustad Mas'ur Yusuf, uh, uh, and he, he has a Skype course online. And I also study with the guys from uh, ShafiFik.com off and on. So moving on
0: from Alpha Muslim, we wanted to get your opinion on some things that are going on in the modern day world. Uh, recently, mm-hmm. I was a couple. Was it last week? At the we had the Republican National Convention, which was freaking awesome. Like two weeks ago, I mean, Trump tore it up, and that millennia's Trump speech was freaking amazing. Like they make the they have the best speeches. I tell you what, they have the best speeches. Everybody loves their speeches. And then you the DNC, which is kind of whack. And but you had this brother named uh, Khizar Khan get up there talk about his son uh, Humayun Khan, and you know a lot of Americans were really moved by his speech. Um, on the counter, though, you had a lot of Muslims coming out and saying, "Well, you know." How are we, like, okay with this dude, like, fighting in an unjust war, killing our brothers
3: and sisters? Like, what's... Like, you know, there's two sides to it. Yeah, there's Muslims who who want uh, want to use or capitalize this incident for their advantage. And then there's also Muslims who are like, wait a second. Fighting against other Muslims or fighting in an army, uh, a non-Muslim army, is is not permissible in Islam. And and I think... uh, uh Dr. Shadil Al-Masri had a really good Facebook post on this uh, where he really hit the hit the nail on the head that this is not permissible in Islam and people u- using this argument and or capitalizing off of uh, this whole uh, the so-called sacrifice of Captain Humayun is kind of hypoc- hypocritical right
1: yeah, you know, it what's, was funny. I posted uh, Dr. Shahidi's uh, Facebook post on on Reddit. And in the comments, I posted another fatwa from, uh, I think it was Fatawa India. One of those fatwas, basically, the Sheikh Al-Hind basically said that it is uh, kufr for a Muslim to serve in the British army in occupied India uh, for various reasons. Now you can agree or disagree or not. But they upvoted Dr. Shahidi's post and they downvoted my comment, which was basically saying the exact same thing. <laughs> yeah. It just points out the the, the you know the, what the we sheep mentality here. But they, exactly, so they just don't like me, so they're just going to downvote whatever I say. But I mean, this uh, this Kisser man, uh, you, American Muslims, like two months ago, like you guys were cheering on for or praising, uh, uh, you know, when uh, when Muhammad Ali passed away, rahma Allah. You're praising his activism and his principal stances against, you know, uh, oppressive American imperialism and things like that. But then two weeks later now, you're cheering for this guy who uh, out of his own choice, he, he went and he did something. Uh, I don't know how many Muslims the guy might might have killed, Allahu A'lam. I'll I tell you
3: one thing that. though. I think a lot of uh, what you hear or resonates overseas it 's from the loudest among our community, not necessarily it 's from the majority of the community not the majority,
2: but he one thing he does i think he he does have an understanding of is that we 're very
3: reactionary and what oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely are, but the, the people who are so reactionary are not necessarily i want to say the, the majority the, yeah. the majority because I think the majority of the the country or Muslims who are here? And there's no, this is just anecdotal yeah. evidence. It's not, uh, uh, any real fixed data, but just from our own experiences, I don't know of any Muslim who would agree to join the American military. Um, uh, because they know that, that the religion does not allow for that.
2: I well,
1: no, I don't know about that. Yeah. I don't, I had a there's a lot really? of Muslims yeah. in the military, There's a lot of Muslims. What does the Sheikh say? What does
2: No, I I know one thing that there's a lot of Muslims in the military. Yeah, there are a lot. And uh, I know as an incentive, like when I was growing up, I don't know if you remember in high school, the you know guys from the army military would come, and yeah. one of my incentives, all oh, my college is going to get paid
3: for. So I was actually kind of considering yeah. once. Yeah, I thought about it too when yeah. I was young, and then my dad like smacked me across the yeah. head when the recruiter actually <laughs> called. He's like, "What the? Uh-huh.
2: So, so I think that in in a in time of immaturity or people, they see something, uh, this is probably in the 90s or, you know, uh, they were kind of like, hey, this is a pretty good deal, you know. But when these wars started happening, um, Muslims, they feel that that America is actually getting the terrorists overseas, so we should be a part of this. Yeah. So there's actually some religious Muslims that kind of believe this, right? That's right. not a huge amount of... But there are Muslims. Yeah. That's why there's a lot of Muslims in the military, you know. I think there's some thousands of numbers that was... uh you know came out that how many Muslims are in the military and some of them are boots on the ground because they're like it's our islamic obligation to get rid of these extremist terrorists and if america's going to do it then we're going to
3: side with them regardless of their religion or whatever so th- i think that's that's there too nabil remember that that hmm. same week that you had posted on on reddit dr shadi's um, his opinion on the whole fighting for for the military there was also another Picture that was trending on on uh, Twitter or, or Reddit. I'm not sure, but it was with Indian soldiers who were executed by the British for refusing to fight against the Ottomans. And Subhanallah. Um, and that was a that was something that was that gave me pause for thought in this whole controversy that was happening. That hey, look, these were Indian soldiers who. Were ordered to fight against the Ottomans and they refused, and uh, they were executed for that. And they were all lined up. That the picture was showing them all lined up. And I I think that 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 these type of discussions need to happen. Uh, Whereas I feel the other side is just quick to railroad us and and say that oh, you know, these guys they don't represent us. And no, I, I feel like everyone is part of a discussion and. It's not necessarily that one point is representing all of Muslims, and I think Muslims are kind of getting caught up in this whole idea that we're supposed to be so monolithic and uh, a big, a big giant block who's going to speak all together and united and not have any varying differences of opinion. I think we need to have these discussions and, and not without without start labeling each other as, you know, these people are part of this group. And
1: you know, you know, my thing is, okay, Tayyip, you, you went and joined the military. You didn't know any better the American military, but now when they start to go fight Muslims, you have that option to be a conscientious objector. Why did it? Why can't you use it?
3: Yeah, yeah. If it's,
1: if it's conflicting with your faith, like, why can't, why can't they use it? Even if they, they say, even if they say that you know it's our it's my responsibility to go and stop these terrorists what, do they know the facts on the ground in reality like we could we criticize western muslims for going to to, to syria to fight against uh, uh fight in the in the war over there because they don't know the facts on the ground and they don't know the reality of the situation what if these american muslims are being uh, fed a line of bs in order to get them to go over there and fight and kill muslims
0: of course yeah, I mean, I have, I have two friends actually who are Muslims who are former, in, former Marines. And I remember both of them joined pre 9-11. And one of them actually told me when he enlisted, this is in the late 90s, that at the time there was nothing really going on. Uh, it was like, and he, he had that concern. And he said, he told me that the older recruiter told me that, you know, if there's any issue with a Muslim country that we have to go into, you can like not participate in that. That turned out not to be true. Oh, really? uh, he actually ended up in Iraq. But I think it was the same thing, the same thing about like, okay, hey, because once you're in the Marine Corps, the Marine Corps is kind of like, has a cult-like mentality and you almost have mm. to, you know, buy into it. That's what makes them, that's what makes the Marine Corps the Marines. I mean, it, there's a, mm. and there's certainly people join because there's a coolness factor about it. Um mm. It's awesome to be a Marine or a Jarhead and... But then the, the bottom line is he still had to go, right? Now, I, I've heard some perspectives from him that doesn't, cause a lot of times we do, on the flip side, we do hear about all the abuses of soldiers over there. But then he, my, my two friends, I mean, these guys I grew up with, they would always tell me some stories about how there would be some like, you know, douchebags. Um, for example, <laughs> in the Marines or an army, wherever. But there's also a lot of good people, and there was there was a lot of good relations that were being built there. Uh, a funny story though, he had um somebody was asking him, like uh, one of his other Marines was like, "Well, since you know Arabic, Hawk, you know his name was Hawk. He says, you know Arabic Hawk. Can you uh I, I want like uh, I think he wanted Kafir or infidel or something tattoo a tattoo, but he didn't know how to spell it. So now it's really popular, but back then it's like early 2000s. So I think he um, had him. Um, he wrote, "I am an a-hole" in Arabic, and had him. Um, <laughs> had a, he had a tattoo instead, <laughs> just to get
2: out of. Awesome! <laughs> wow, that's a good prank. Life, it's just a life-lasting, long life-long, expensive.
0: You you can get it removed, probably ex- very expensive. And Marines are you know they don't pay them anything, so they're not really not gonna be able to afford that. Alright, so go ahead. it would have, it,
1: it wouldn't, it wouldn't be such a big deal, like, if Americans were in the situation, American Muslims were in the situation that they were in, but they kept, they kept to themselves. The problem is, um, I look at, I look at American Muslims, and I'm not, I'm just generalizing here, I'm not making it universal. I look at American Muslims like the Moors of Spain after, after the fall of Muslim rule. But if you would, if you were to give the Moors of Spain YouTube, And, and give them the sort of mentality that they're more exceptional than all of the other Muslim cultures of the, of the East. So, like American Muslims in general, they're spreading these weird opinions over, you know, over the internet and Muslims in the east because this is the media of the day this is how people absorb information you know they're on they're on youtube they're watching the, the they're listening to the podcasts they're going on the, the the slick websites and they're absorbing this the culture becomes the culture that you that is american islam yeah not necessarily islam as a whole the culture that is american islam is being exported around the world and being absorbed by people and that culture then translates into Ideology that is not necessarily Islamic in a way.
0: Very nice, very nice. Uh, Nabil, before we start wrapping up, uh, what advice would you have for an 18-year-old version of yourself? Knowing what you know now, when you're, let's go back to the year 99 or 2000, you're on a plane from Colombo to Chicago to go to IIT. What advice would you have for that individual?
1: I would say just uh, stick very close to the, the Muslim community around you. Uh, because they're gonna, they should, inshallah, if they're good people, if they're good Muslims, they'll help you, uh, stay uh, on the straight and narrow. Try not to be alone in this day and age. Has, have a, have a bunch of good brothers around you because that's probably your, your best, your best bet of coming out of, uh, a Western college unscathed. And uh, I guess, you know, focus on your, uh, you know, read as much, as much Quran as you can. Uh, mostly because that relationship that you have with Allah is probably what might might save you and from a man's perspective uh, I want the brothers to understand the power that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives them when they lower their gaze uh, when you lower their gaze you, when you lower your gaze basically you become in control of your entire environment around you and that gives you power, you be, you be, you're able to dominate your environment around you and you'll notice Notice that when you start lowering your gaze uh, you might start getting more and more you might get more attention from the ladies because they're wondering like what's up with this guy why isn't he paying us attention so it gives you <laughs> power it gives you control over your environment and it's basically it helps you you know get through uh, what is generally going to be a difficult situation all around if you're at college uh, the way it's situ- the, the way society is today
2: there you have it, man. Many benefits. That's a great tip. I might have to try that to get number two. <laughs> for, real,
0: for real, for <laughs> real.
1: Just you know there, you know Ali Khan, he has a he has a clip on YouTube where he's talking about he was in this elevator and this lady walks in and he doesn't look at her, he's got his gaze lowered, and then she walks up to him and is like, What are you? You <laughs> didn't look at me even once. I was like, and he's like, I don't have to look at you, I'm married. I don't I don't need to look at you. And then she's like, but you know, what, what are you? Why, why didn't you look at me? I was like, I don't need to look at you. I'm married. And then she's like, what? No, I mean, like, what religion are you? And then he's like, Islam. And then she's like, (gasps) and she's like, she's like, uh, she's dumbfounded because she couldn't imagine that a Muslim man would be like this or a man in general would be like this
0: man i really hope my wife does not listen to this podcast no <laughs> i'm right. to make such to hundred tonight dude for this well i asked him to edit something for, for sure you. no don't edit anything it's, it's still gotta be that's, that's who i am right Nabil? so how can people get reach out to you what are the other uh you have, we have your website book alpha uh how to what make an alpha muslim like what's the website actually what's the website address before i butcher it
1: the website is becoming the alpha exactly how it's spelled becoming the alpha and i'll be uh, i don't know when does this uh, podcast go live when is it published
3: about 3 weeks
1: about three, 3 weeks okay well you can they can just basically uh check out my website or if they want to get in uh f- follow me on social media they can follow me probably the easiest thing to do is follow me on twitter uh at nabil for real n a b w e l the number 4 and then r w e l or they can follow my uh, official facebook page which is uh, facebookcom Muslim uh and they'll be able to get announcements when i release uh my material i've got an article dropping today uh this is uh, today is saturday the 6th of august Basically on sex and sexuality and how we talk about those things in a very irreverent, very in-your-face, very tongue-in-cheek kind of way. So it's going to be extremely provocative, and uh, I would say it's it's on the border of halal and haram.
0: <laughs> it's like like a Muslim Kama Sutra, would you say?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If if if, uh, if porn if porn was halal, this would be this would be it. Is there a video version? (laughs) No,
2: No, I think what you mean is, uh, Brother Nabil, I think what you mean is there's no sugarcoating to what you're going to say about sexuality and sex because um, you have to be straightforward many times because if you're not straightforward, then there's a lot of confusion, right? So I'm assuming that what you mean by that is you're just going to be very straightforward and you're not going to let any language barriers or any type of barriers hold you back from getting a message across about your content, right?
1: Yes, basically. Yeah. That's the way the, the shiuch and the du'a talk yeah. about, uh, you know, sexual issues is so boring. Yeah. Like, how can you make something as interesting as sex sound so boring? This yeah. is why I wrote this article, because it's just like, I've had enough now.
2: Okay, right, yes. and that's why there's too many prudes in the community too. I think, <laughs> to be honest. Wow, Nabil Aziz, I think you're the I think uh, you're the best thing that happened to Mahin. He's unleashing so many uh, feelings from his heart right now, and he feels so empowered. I mean, he's, if you see him right now, he's sitting with each of his hands on on you know on the side of the recliner, and he just feels like a real man now. And he's walking with his chest puffed out. So you you've made him into something else yes. already.
1: Yes, stand stand tall, head up, and chest out, man. Don't be don't be afraid of all of these feminists and people trying to castrate you and turn you into like this simpering, supplicating beta
3: male. We <laughs> going back to uh, just any feminists who are out there who I consider what true feminism is is um, these Muslim sisters who are actually helping. Um, uh, sisters who have been, uh, from uh, damaged or abused households. And I know we have, uh, the HumDirt Center in Chicago that does uh, a lot of outreach to these type of women. Uh, and they, they do all this type of really good humanitarian work. And we're not really talking about those feminists. Uh, just to make sure, mm-hmm. make it clear out there, we're talking about these people who are using their platform to attack people. And trying to torpedo anyone's effort at, like, uh, Abu Issa.
1: See, this is, this, is why, this is why I launched Becoming the Alpha Muslim, because after what we said, you felt the need to sort of qualify your language and qu- couch your language. Yeah, yeah. I actually, I take a fairly hard line uh, on this feminism issue. Those sisters that are helping uh, abuse women and stuff like that, they're not doing, actually doing feminism, they're just doing Islam. Exactly. If it's, if, it's within the bound of, if it's within the boundaries of Islam, why do you have to call it feminism? Okay. Feminism as a word, it means one specific thing. And most, and the basis of that specific thing is anti-Islamic. Uh, it's based on, you know, secular liberalist ideology. And it's like a, it's basically a religion on its own. So if, if you're doing something that's completely within the bounds of Islam and that's obligatory in Islam, then why do you have to call it feminism or Islamic feminism or Muslim feminism? It doesn't make any sense. The word is actually redundant. It serves no purpose whatsoever.
3: Absolutely.
0: All right, Nabil JazakAllah Khair for coming on. Uh, I feel like I got to make a special trip to Dubai just to come see you, since you said so you ain't coming to Chicago anytime soon. Uh, Sabri Nahari isn't worth it, huh? <laughs> I don't know what your cup of tea <laughs> Sabri is. Sabri
1: Nahari is not; uh, it doesn't have the enough masala, man. I, when I when I was there, it was the it was the it was the bomb because that was the best we could get. And uh, Hyderabad house, you know. Yeah. Uh, so when you come here now, you eat the real, you eat the real food. Over there, it's a bit Americanized. They made it a little less spicy for the goras.
0: <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. All right. Jazakallah khair again. May Allah put barakah in your project and bless, continue to bless you and, um, I mean, and your I mean, studies I mean, of the deen, inshallah, and allow us to benefit as well. For our listeners I mean, out there, if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, you can email us at the madmamluks at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-M-A-D-M-A-M. L-U-K S. If you want to send me hate mail, you can do so <laughs> on our, via Twitter at the Mad Mum Luke's, or like our Facebook page at them also by the same name the Mad Mamluks For Sheikh Amr Said, Sim and myself Mahin, we are the Mad Mamluks signing off. Assalamualaikum.